Welcome to the Direct Response Marketing Magic Podcast. Seth Green is a five-time best-selling author, speaker, and nationally recognized direct response marketing expert who is CEO of one of the fastest-growing direct response marketing firms in the country. To get free access to a download of his new book, Podcast Marketing Magic, and a free live training webinar that will show you how you can use a podcast to attract new customers and referrals like magic, simply register at www.ultimatemarketingmagician.com. On the podcast, Seth brings together some of the most cutting-edge thought leaders in the world to share with you how they grow their businesses and how you can too. And now, here's your host, Seth Green. Welcome to the Direct Response Podcast. This is your host, Seth Green. Today, I have the good fortune to be joined by an amazingly fascinating entrepreneur, Mark Acosta Rubio, who I am thrilled to interview. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course. Let's go back in time a little bit because you had such an incredible journey. Um, how did you get started as an entrepreneur? Well, I think as an entrepreneur, probably as a young kid, I had sort of this burning itch to always do something unconventional, maybe a bit different than most. Plus, I was as poor as dirt. And so necessity played a big role. And what was your first entrepreneurial venture? I don't know. You know, I mean, if you count jobs and probably uh, cleaning lawns, but entrepreneurial venture, I think when I was about, I don't know, seventh grade, I actually got this idea of, I don't know if you remember this, Seth, maybe you're too young, but they used to sell bubblegum nickel and penny bubblegum. Oh, I remember. And you remember, okay, good. So, so what I did is I... I took my backpack, I went to the convenience store, took the books out of my backpack before I got on the bus to go to junior high, and went and bought as much gum as I possibly could, took it to the junior high, sold the penny gum for a dime, sold the nickel for a quarter, I made, I don't know, like six, seven dollars the first day. So I spent the remainder of that seventh grade year hiding the books under the concession or the, uh, you know, the place at the convenience store, buying gum, selling it. So the point was I was making $36 a day, net income, and uh, I was hooked after that. That is too funny. I didn't realize we had that in common. I also was a gum dealer in middle school. <laughs> got to the point where um, got called into the principal's office, you know, because gum is yeah. not allowed in school. It's a distraction. You have to stop selling it. Um, and, you know, I said, well, why don't we make it a school fundraiser and I'll donate a percentage of the profits to the school. And she said, are you trying to bribe a principal? <laughs> I said, I don't know what that means, but I, I figured we, you could both make some money. Um, she did not oh, like totally. that idea. Um, they called my parents. My parents grounded me. I did not listen. And the next day, you know, went and bought more gum, went back to school, sold more gum, and then, unfortunately, as I was walking home from the store the next day, my mother had came home early from work and caught me walking down the street with a backpack full of gum that when I was supposed to be grounded in the house. So my 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 gum career got put to an end. Oh, that's the same thing happened to me. I got busted. I didn't have the foresight or the intelligence to go to the principal and say, hey, let's make it a fundraiser. I was like, okay, I'm busted. I think I did it for a week afterwards, and, you know, they, I got caught again, and, 
you know, was threatened with suspension. And, but you know, look, I mean, I think it's interesting. There's a lot of talk about entrepreneurs and anybody, anybody could be an entrepreneur. The truth of the matter is, you know, nobody wants to hear this or say it. It really isn't true, right? Entrepreneurs are a select breed. Um, we are unique. We are different. And there's a lot of guys and gals who go off on a venture, and they can be very successful, still be high-income earners that really can't be entrepreneurs. They might be good operations guy or good right-hand men and women. And it's, it's a unique ability to take certain risks and do things that others tell you you can't do that makes us entrepreneurs. I would agree 100%. Our, our mutual friend Alex Charfin has done some amazing work on the entrepreneurial personality type. So after GUM, um, give me um, first quote-unquote real business after GUM. So, I mean, I had a lot of little ventures. You've had so many I think over real the business, years. Yeah, I think we all do, right? I mean, we could all go back in our history and be like, oh, I did this, I did this. But I think when I finally really understood it is, um, you know, when I started trying to sponsor seminars in the hypnosis field and you know, unconscious restructuring and that kind of stuff. That was my sort of first venture. And that was great for my learning, terrible for business. So I, you know, went to college, went to law school, dropped out, got a gig, got fired from the gig. But I had accumulated enough knowledge at that time where I was, okay, let me do something on my own. And that's where we started One Stop. Now, I was, I'm 46 now. I was 28 when I started One Stop. And, you know, we made the Inc. 500 Fastest Growing Company list. And I was a millionaire by age 31. And I mean cash millionaire, not fake millionaire, you know, my guy, no, no, cash in the bank at 31. And then, you know, DECA millionaire, right, cash at 37 and financial independence at 38. I think that's probably the real uh, business, as you would call it. The rest of them are probably just starters or fun things where you learn experiences or try to find sort of, you know, what you're good at or your passion. Does that answer the question? Absolutely. Now, for folks who are listening who aren't familiar with Call One Stop, tell us a little bit about it. Well, you know, the we sell primarily toner, inks, and, and off supplies, but that really isn't what, you know, you marketers would call a USP, right? Our USP was an internal USP, not so much an external USP. And what I mean by that is, you know, we compete with Staples and Office Depot and the local Yoko. And, you know, I mean, when I got into toner and ink, you know, barrier to entry was a phone call and a name. I mean, that was it, right? Because you could drop ship everything, and most of those guys didn't make it. What made us different and what still makes us different is that our sort of saga or our passion really was taking individuals who wanted to be better in life, to make more money, who didn't have a you know, college degree or an MBA and show them how to do that via sales, really primarily all on the phone. And that's what became, became so unique. It wasn't that we sold toner at a cheaper price or that you know, we gave better service. We did give and still do give much better service. We're not the cheapest, right? I mean, that's, it's hard to make a living when you're like that. We give our clients something others can't give them, but it really was about taking somebody into our organization and culturally shifting them, their belief system, their habits, their capacity, so that they can be the kind of individual that can make six figures you know, or more uh, a year. And that, you don't hear that very often, right? Because most of the guys and marketers that I've connected with, they're amazingly bright, some of them, I should say, amazingly bright, but it's all about the internal, not I'm sorry, the, the external, not the internal. I don't know if that makes any sense to you or not, or if we need to elaborate on it. It makes total sense. You sort of flipped it on its head, and by um, taking the right person, 
and giving them the skill set they need to succeed and getting them the mindset they need to succeed, they, I, they presume, are much more passionate about what they're doing than someone who is just punching a clock and thinks it's a regular job and that is boring. Yeah, you know, it's, you know, in, I mean, look, in business and entrepreneurship, there's really four things we have to focus on. Mindset versus skill set, that's one. And you as the entrepreneur have to be the chief strategist, you also have to be the chief team builder, and you have to be the chief sales officer. And each one of those four subsets has a lot of moving parts within it. And it wasn't about, you know, we didn't have the luxury of attracting, you know, superstar, you know, it, people say hire A players. Okay, good luck. Good luck. You go find nothing but A players. Good luck with that. I couldn't find only A players. I found misfits, you know, um, regular folk. Right? I found them in all kinds, but it was our ability to beat them over the head, to change their belief system, make them perform better, and make them feel that they're part of a culture that allows them to do something they normally wouldn't do. Perfect example is if you look at the only real change agent that exists that has been around since forever is the military. And they don't go give me your, you know, A players. They're like, just sign up and we will help you. We will right, make you. Right, you've got you... a pulse and you can make it through, right. you know, the PT. You'll be all right. We'll, we'll train you. Right. And that's really what entrepreneurs have to do because we need to work with whatever is given to us. Not, you know, uh, hiding behind the books and the tapes and all that, you know, baloney. It's out and dirty, Spartan type stuff, suit up, put your, you know, kill on or whatever and just go do something and get your butt handed to you. And hopefully you keep on learning and progressing until you sort of make it work. And I mean, look, I, I, you know, I, I succeeded early, not because I was skilled, but because I just wouldn't be denied, right? It, I, first of all, I couldn't pay my bills, so I had to make sales in order to eat. And I had a, a one-year-old and a beautiful wife and a car and a mortgage I couldn't make uh, if I didn't sell and eat. So I didn't bill my clients I shouldn't say that. I build my clients, but I didn't really collect it for the first 12 months. I was afraid if I called them and said, hey, where's my check? They'd be like, oh, screw you, click, and they'd never buy again. So oh after 12 months, right, after 12 months of having almost no cash flow, about to go under for the first time, I decided to be creative, so I created a little stamp that said, roses are red, violets are blue, this invoice is way past due, please remit payment. And then I crossed my fingers. And then we got some money coming in, and you know, I remember when I first bought my house. It was a million two or a million three. Big beautiful house, right? And my wife spent, you know, three hundred grand in the backyard, additional three hundred grand. I mean, just this really amazing we still own it in California. This amazing, gorgeous, beautiful dream home. And I still didn't know what in the world the P and L was or a balance sheet or a cash flow statement. Now I was a millionaire, but I didn't know any of that stuff. And I and I realized if I didn't learn that stuff, I wouldn't last too long. So I hired somebody to come teach me finance. You can imagine this lady shows up, right? She's super educated, MBA, PhD in finance, pulls up to this, you know, million-plus-dollar home, and the furniture is gorgeous, and I mean, it's a perfect life, and I've got Mercedes parked outside, and yada, yada. And I'm like, hey, uh, can you help me read my own balance sheet panel and cash flow statement? And, you know, the look on her face was like, oh, my God, I, I can't believe this must be surreal. But my point is, is that entrepreneurs, we just keep moving. We just keep taking those steps, and we sort of figure things out along the way. Now, hopefully, you know, your listeners and your folks know you, and they're super bright and smart, and you can help them avoid those mistakes. 
by you know sharing insights and you know experiences of others so that they don't have to wait until they're you know living in the big home to understand the balance sheet, the PL and the cash flow statement or all the four facets and yada 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 yada. What do you wish you knew when you started that you know now? Everything. I wish I knew everything I know now when I first started because it'd be much easier. It'd be much bigger. Um, you know, I, I think I was fortunate in the sense that I looked for mentors. Um, and, you know, they weren't necessarily all savvy in the same area, Seth. You know, one guy was a mentor in influence. One guy was a mentor in strategy. One guy was a mentor in team building. Um, and I didn't, you know, I didn't just read the books because, you know, I've read over 3,000 books, but I went and, and sought them out. And I, if they charged me, I'd pay them whatever to get the knowledge. I think if, if you ask me what would I do differently going back in time, I think I'd move faster and think bigger because it really is a mindset versus a skill set. Because, you know, the ability to get one account that generates $50 million a year is actually in some cases easier than to get an account that generates 50000 a year. It's, but it's the mindset, right, that's going to either attract or repel that account. You know, there's no in-between. You either attract something or you're repelling it. Um, so I think that's what I wish I would have done differently. But, you know, thanks. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, what do you like best about your business now? People. I think, I think you know, go ahead. No, go ahead. I, you know, David Allen, who wrote the book, Anything's Done, um, yep. and I'm co-authoring a book with him, which you know about, uh, he's, he's a, a dear friend, and he was one of the guys I first hired, you know, uh, to consult when I first opened my little office and you know, I paid him a thousand dollars for half a day and he gave me the wallet and you know I took him eat a cha cha cha. This is back in two thousand and one. I was thirty one at the time. You know, now he charged I don't know fifty thousand a day or God knows what. But one of the things that David shared with me was, hey Marks, create a list called Am My Best When. And he had this list for his organization. <clears throat> so I've had this list for now, you know, gee what, uh, 17, 16 years. And it morphs, right? Seth, it changes, right? As my companies change or begin to different, you know, whether we're on Amazon or whether we're on Google or phone sales, it changes. But I have that list. I'm on my best win. <clears throat> and one of the things that's remained consistent is I am at my best when I help individuals who want to do well do even better, or I help those who are doing really well do even better. So I'm at my best in my organization when I can help somebody within my organization just do a better job. Does that make sense? Absolutely. With all the success you've achieved, what's your biggest challenge? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, I think I, I think it, it's sort of the other side of that coin is that in in helping individuals do better, what you have to do, you know, it's like I see myself as a sculpture. So I look at somebody who works for me or, you know, I, I, I own several other companies and I get a portion of the profits or they pay me to coach them, these entrepreneurs. So I look at them and I, and I see the same way that Michelangelo saw the David. You know, the David is a big, beautiful statue in Florence, which if you haven't seen it, oh my gosh, it's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. The only piece of art that made me go, wow. Um, you know, and I've seen the Mona Lisa and all this stuff, but that's amazing. So Michelangelo said he would look at a piece of clay or not a piece of clay, sorry, a piece of stone and he would see what's inside the stone. And then he'd get to work to chip away at the unessential, the thing that wasn't what the stone really was. And hence, 
the David shows up or the Madonna or whatever other piece of work there is. That's the way I see the world, the way I see individuals in my life. I see them as stones, in some cases finished, some cases not. And my biggest frustration is trying to get that, you know, that stone chipped away because sometimes, you know, you all don't make it easy. Right. <laughs> you're like, no, you're like, and you're hitting it, and you're hitting it. Um, so I think, you know, what I love the most is also uh, brings the biggest frustrations. How do you stay on, on the cutting edge? How do you stay on top of, you know, the information overload that you must see in a day? Well, you know, I'm a big GTD guy, right? So the book that David and I are writing, it's really about GTD for the entrepreneur. I'm really a big GTD guy. So I don't think it's – and I'm, now I'm going to steal David's line, right, because I want to give him credit. Um, it's not about information overload. It's about meaning, the meaning of the information. What does it mean to me? Where do, where do I park it? What do I do with it? So, you know, you get 300 emails a day. It's not the 300 emails. It's there put, could potentially be either a phenomenal opportunity or a total disaster in one of those 300 emails, and you need to process them all. So if you're a, a GTD or the right way, you know, somebody who actually practices and understands it, that's no problem. So I deal with it by having a system that doesn't break down on me so I can, because what we really need, and again, I'm, I'm channeling David, what we really need is not more time, it's more space. There's a great book by Fiore Campanoli called Brain Chain, or I, I forget, the, not Daniel Pippa, some other guy who wrote a book called The Organized Mind. And basically, cognitive science now tells us that our brains can't function when we're stressed, right? It's fight or flight at that moment in time. When you're relaxed and confident, that's when your brain does most creative thinking. So I need to make sure that my world and my life allows me to be present in whatever I'm doing so I can be my best. Right? So in this phone call, there's nothing on my mind except you. Nothing. I wouldn't be able to do it if I wasn't a GTD practitioner. And that allows me to be a high performer. And I, so it's not about what you do with the information overload. It's how are you managing all of your commitments in your entire life so you can perform at your best? And I know guys that, you know, are more successful than I am and some that are less successful than I am who are never present, always on their phone, or you look at them and, you know, their kids waiting for them and they're not paying attention. No, they're just, they're keeping it all inside their head versus in a trusted system. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's the best answer I got for you. It does. It answers my question very well. So you've mentioned two great books already. Give me one more that's had a significant impact on your work. Wow, one, huh? Okay. Well, I normally ask um, for the three best books you've ever read, but you've already given us two, so I'm only going to put you on the spot for one more. Jonathan Livingston Siegel. Really? Have you read that book? Yeah. It's not a business. I mean, not a. It, it's, it's funny because I ask this question of everyone on the show, and you know, we always there are some commonalities like Think and Grow Rich always comes up. There's some sure. You know, eighty twenty sales and marketing will come up. So there are some a lot of some of the same. Business books will come up, but no one's ever mentioned Jonathan Livingston Siegel. Why'd you? I love it. Why'd you bring it up? So okay, so two things. So Richard Koch was a good friend of mine. Most everybody yeah. who's taken his work has completely misunderstood it, misapplied it, and got in trouble for it. So I want to make sure you say. I want to sure I say that because I hear it all the time. Oh, I read this other eighty twenty book and so I'm good. No, they didn't get it. They completely misunderstood it. That's number one. Second thing is Thinking Rich is also another misunderstood book. Everybody misquotes it, misunderstands it, yada, 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 and that gets them into trouble. So now to answer the question, why Jonathan Lewis Siegel? It is the greatest story of an entrepreneur I've ever read. He is a Siegel, as you know, 
who doesn't want to be a seagull. He doesn't want to just sit in the beach and eat. He wants to fly really fast. And the rest of the seagulls tell him, you can't do it. No, no, no. It's, it's my philosophy that you can't do it. You can't do that philosophy, right? You can't do it. And he pushes and pushes and pushes and pushes himself. And despite crashing into the ocean, despite, you know, broken wings, despite all of his trials, he finally figures out the trick. And I won't tell you what the trick is because if you haven't read it, um, read it. But I think that encompasses more than any other book you can possibly read what it's like to really be an entrepreneur, in my own personal opinion, obviously. I agree with you. It's a great story. And um, for those of you who haven't read it who are listening, I highly suggest it. Um, I'll agree with Marks on that. I didn't think of it that way, but it's t- you're totally right. I, I would totally agree with that. Um, fascinating interview. I've got pages of notes. I'm sure our listeners do, too. So I, you've got so much going on. For our listeners who are resonating with you, being inspired by you, want to learn more about you, um, where, is, where are some of the best places they can go to connect and learn more? You know, I'm not even sure. First of all, I won't give my email address out because that's just cuckoo, right? And, and I don't, you know, I'm not an infomarketer. So I mean, there's no products to sell. Although Doberman Dan or Dan Gallipu is putting together a seminar where I'll be the guy and yada, yada. So if they know who he is, they can reach out to him. But I'm actually going to flip it on the, on the other side and say, look, if your listeners are interested in any way I can help them, let them reach out to you. And, you know, then you can decide if you want to filter or not because you have my email address to me. I mean, that's probably the best I can give you. Fair enough. Okay, folks. So if you are fascinated as I am by Marks and want to learn more, let me know. And we will institute, depending on the number of responses, some type of vetting process. And if you qualify, we'll get you in contact with Marks. Fair enough. I love the take. I love the negative reverse takeaway there. <laughs> Nobody's ever done that you on the show before. So you are the first. Um, well, thank you. Thank you. No problem. Thank you so much for giving us some of your very valuable time. Anything else you want to share that I should have asked you that I didn't? Uh, no, I mean, look, it's, it's a lot of great questions. I think if I was to add a postscript, it would be that focus on the mindset versus skill set, focus on being a chief strategist, chief team builder, chief sales officer. If you can master those four principles or areas and delve into them, there really, they're really isn't anything you can't accomplish as an entrepreneur. Uh, rather than being the doer or, you know, the marketer or whatever of your thing, you need to step out a little bit more and be more uh, the entrepreneur of the thing. Awesome. Thank you so much. Great interview. Greatly appreciate you being here. Everybody, thank you for listening. We will talk to you next time. Mark, thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>